Welcome to From Skirts to Scrubs. I'm Alicia. And I'm Charlotte. And we are two medical students trying to figure out our place in medicine by looking to the past and to current events to try and understand the impact they have on us as women in medicine and women in general. Yeah, and you can find or follow us on social media. We have an Instagram and Facebook, which is at From Skirts to Scrubs. We have Twitter, which is at FSTS underscore podcast. And you can also check out our website more information on our episodes, show notes, sources, and more at scrubs.com. You can also subscribe to our podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us a rating and review. Apple Podcasts is a great place for that. Spotify has a little thing now. So yeah. Yeah. And welcome back to episode 39. I hope everyone's having a great week and you're excited for this new episode. So In this episode, we will be discussing medicine of the American Civil War and highlighting two incredible women, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker and Clara Barton. Oh, fun. Surprise. Yeah. Told you, surprise. Okay. So talking about a war is always difficult because obviously war is very frustrating in itself as an entity that exists in the world. And there's always an unthinkable number of deaths. But I wanted to point out the medical advancements often come from times of war, especially in history. So I think it's very important that people understand how the people of the past, whether they were amazing, horrible people, or people who died for whatever reasons, they're a part of what shaped society today. So we need to talk about them. So with that, let's talk about the American Civil War. Now, Alicia, I'm not going to ask you what the Civil War is. I'm going to ask you (laughs) if you know anything about medical advancements during the Civil War. Okay, so I know that the Red Cross was started during the Civil War. Cough, cough, Mm -hmm. Clara Barton. Spoiler alert. (laughs) Hey, you asked me what I knew. (laughs) Um, But then also, I actually don't know that much about medical advancements. (laughs) I know that there were like defense advancements. Like I know that the guns and like muskets or whatever that were used during the Civil War were like, quote unquote, more advanced than previous wars. And so I imagine that that had an impact on the medical care that was provided and necessary. Mm. Like, I wonder if um, the Civil War was a time where a lot of field work was necessary of like going onto the battlegrounds and like taking care of the wounded then. Mm -hmm. Um, But those are my only thoughts. I actually don't know about any specific advancements that were made. So that's a very good thought process that may pay off for you later. <laughs> Thank you. All right, you. Let's, let's talk about it all. Let's do it. So I will start off this episode by giving a mini American history lesson. Fun fact, American history is my worst history subject. <laughs> um, nice. So super Sick. fun. This was a very informative researching for me. Okay, so. The American Civil War lasted for four years from 1861 to 1865. The war was fought between the Union, the Northern States, and the Confederacy, which were the Southern States. The Confederacy was made up of seven Southern States who left the United States after Abraham Lincoln won the election on an anti-slavery platform in 1860. So this was a humanitarian and political fight to end slavery in the 1800s and that basically like lit the fire for the Civil War. So over the four years that the war waged, there was over 10,000 battles and over 1 million people died, which was about 3% of the population at the time. 
in the American Civil War is the bloodiest war in all of American history, mm. with the deaths adding up to more than all other wars the U.S. has fought in combined. Wow. So, yeah, it's very significant for a lot of different reasons in U.S. history. But of all those people who died, guess how many died of um, disease? A hundred. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> there are over... <laughs> Over 1 million people die. <laughs> Give me like a percentage, a fraction. Oh no, the thinker's really not on. I thought, I mean, but, um, okay, maybe like 30? 30%? 70? That's closer, yeah. It was oh, okay, so it was more disease. Okay, okay. Yes. I thought you were trying to, like, lean me towards a surprising number of people didn't die from infection. I was going to say no. five, so this is better. <laughs> oh, no. No, two-thirds of the people in the war who died died of disease. Hence why medicine was vital to this war. Because death suddenly was uncontrollable at this time. Neither side of the war really expected the war to be long or as brutal as it was. And they were just simply not prepared to take care of the sick or the wounded. Like they literally were not prepared at all. Throughout the war, there were numerous epidemics. There were epidemics of childpox, mumps, oh, shoot. whooping cough, whooping measles, cough, no. typhoid <laughs> fever, malaria. Oh, shoot. <laughs> Gross. Yeah just raging through the camps. And then also they didn't really have many like ways to treat these conditions. Like physicians would often just prescribe coffee or alcohol to help. Nice. You super alcohol. Drink a shot of vodka. Yeah. Super helpful. Um, and then on top of all of that, there wasn't really anywhere to go. Like each side of the war really only had prepared like one or two hospitals max for their soldiers and didn't really hire that many doctors. Good work. That's like half the country has two hospitals to care for their sick. Um, And if you've listened to episode 14 on Florence Nightingale, we talk a little bit about hospitals in the 1800s there. Um, Hospitals were not clean or what you imagine now. They were cramped, dirty. They had little light, no ventilation not really a place of healing Mm. so medicine obviously really needed to change especially as war was waging so on either side generals began to start building and buying hospitals um but they didn't have a way to get soldiers from the battlefield to the hospitals so they'd often have like the wounded just kind of chill on the battlefield and wait for someone to come get them or they would have like their comrades carry them to safety, mm. which isn't really the best plan. So what do you think our first medical advancement in Civil War was, Alicia? Gurneys. Close, close. If they had to get someone from where they were ambulances. to a hospital. Yes, ambulances. A doctor named Dr. Jonathan Letterman designed the ambulance, which was fit for battle at the time. So it was like a equipped with a certain amount of horses or something to get in the field. But mainly it was equipped with like medical supplies, water, stretchers, like multiple areas for people to sit. But that's just the beginning of the advancement. So I'm going to list off some more advancements in Civil War. So one, they use quinine for the prevention of malaria, they figured out. They started using quarantine, which helped eliminate yellow fever at the time. 
They successfully treated gangrene in the hospital via isolation and bromine. Developed an ambulance. They used trains and boats to move patients to. They created specialty hospitals, started using anesthetics more, uh, started working on neurosurgery, plastic surgery, and amputations. So a lot of medicine was changing during the war. And this is where we get to the fun part. So when the war began, there was like less than $100. Oh my God. There was less than 100 doctors on either side of the war. And when the Civil War ended, there was over 12,000 doctors in the Union Army and 3,000 in the Confederate. Wow. So tons of new doctors. But not all of them were men. So let's talk about the female doctors of the Civil War. One doctor in particular is one of our favorite gals, and she did a lot in this war. Clara Barton. No, we're talking about <laughs> Dr. Celicia. Oh, shoot. Dr. Elizabeth Walker. <laughs> Close. <laughs> I'm just guessing. That's just one of our favorite gals. Yes. Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell. Dr. Elizabeth Blackwell and her sister, Dr. Emily Blackwell. The lot for the Civil War. They helped organize over 4,000 women in New York to help collect blankets, food, clothing, different supplies to send to the Union Army. Additionally, they um, created a program in their hospital system that would train women specifically. It was a one-month program to train them to be nurses and then send them to an on-site training site for the Union Army as well. There was also a woman named Dr. Rebecca Lee Crumper. She was the first African-American doctor in the United States. And she teamed up with other Black physicians to care for free enslaved individuals who otherwise would have had little to no medical care during this period. Mm -hmm. Some other doctors, there was Dr. Sarah Ann Chap, who was an assistant surgeon in the Army, Dr. Mary Frame Thomas, who's also a surgeon, Dr. Esther Hill Hawks, who was a physician and a teacher who worked mostly with former enslaved populations. And then there was one final physician who I want to talk the most about, Dr. Mary Edwards Walker. Dr. Walker is a cool guy. So Dr. Walker was the youngest of five girls in her family. And she'd always been taught the importance of like quality education, which really helped her pursue medicine at a time where women didn't really pursue medicine as much. And so she became part of the handful of women who became the first physicians in the United States. But when the Civil War broke out in 1861, Dr. Walker shut down her medical practice. She was a surgeon and went to enlist in the army. Mm. But when she showed up at the general's house, he looked at her and was like, uh, no, because growing up, Dr. Walker's father did not like women's clothes. He thought they were impractical. He thought they were like unhealthy for women to wear, like too confining. Mm. So he always fitted his daughters in men's clothes. So basically just wearing pants and a top like people wear today but in the 1800s women didn't do those things right so mary shows up to enlist looking like a man dressing like a man saying she'd like to serve as a surgeon and the general was not about this he looked at this like enthusiastic smart woman and was like i am terrified i cannot no you are not going to be in the army and denied her application and then they told her they would never consider a woman in a position any higher than a nurse in the medical unit of the army. But that did not stop Dr. Walker there. She went to a hospital in Indiana where she worked in an infirmary with a Dr. J.N. Green as a surgeon. And she was amazing at her job. And Dr. Green saw this and 
pushed for her to get a salary because she was just like volunteering at this hospital oh, wow. infirmary for the Union Army. And he, she was literally working side by side with this other doctor. So he was like, you need to be paid. Of course, the hospital denied. And he even offered her half of his own salary, but she humbly denied it and just continued volunteering. But Dr. Walker still really wanted to work specifically for the Union Army. So she started doing a little bit more field work. And can you guess what like she would do on the field? She did a lot of surgical management. Was she doing like wound care on the field? Yes. What kind of wound care do you think? Like suturing and stuff. Amputations? Yes, amputations. Yeah. I'm proud of you for getting there. Thank you. <laughs> so Dr. Walker is very influential in amputation management. So kind of like you were saying before, Alicia, how you were saying like the guns advanced in the Civil War. Mm -hmm. It you know led to a lot of wounds that people didn't really have to deal with before. So in 1861, when the war broke out, the Sanitary Commission recommended that any limb with any laceration or fracture should be amputated. Oh, God. Yeah. So that's so like even like limbs. a little scratch, <laughs> a little paper cut. <laughs> no more finger for you. <laughs> it literally said any limb with a laceration. So I don't know how deep the laceration had to be, but no limb. And it's a little, little extreme, you would think. And at a time where they didn't even know germ theory yet, wasn't discovered for a couple of decades until after the war. Amputating someone's body part, terrible risk of infection, terrible people died. A lot of people died because of this commission. To give you some numbers, over half of the patients who had amputations above the knee area died. Mm. And then patients who had an amputation at the hip had about 20% fatality rate. Interesting. Interesting that it's lower at the hip than the knee. <laughs> yeah, I don't know why. Yeah, I don't know. But that, that's what it said. But you know who saw that this was wrong in bad medicine? Dr. Walker. Dr. Mary Walker saw this and was like, this is really bad. So she advocated against this policy and would be on the battlefield and advocating for her soldiers to not have their limbs amputated and send them home to, you know, do more rehabilitation care. And she ended up saving a lot of soldiers um, saved limbs and they'd actually write letters to her thanking her for letting them keep their limb and how much better they were doing and things like that and so she slowly became known as like this doctor who would specifically save these patients limbs mm. and people would like flock to her and like want her to be their doctor so that she wouldn't cut off their arms and legs yeah so she started to become like very very well known and at this time, she's still a volunteer. She's not actually that's crazy like, an official army position yet. I know. So Mary's like sending all of these letters to the Union Army, like asking if she can officially be part of the army, you know, like get paid for the work she's doing, like get the honor she should be given. And soon this becomes a national news story. Oh, wow. Yeah. Because people know like all these soldiers who were, you know, went home because they had been injured and could no longer serve, went home. And so it became public knowledge that there was this amazing female surgeon who was not being allowed to officially join the army. So one newspaper quoted, if a woman is proved competent for duty and anxious to perform it, why, restra why restrain her? So true. Agree. Totally agree. 
New York Times even published a quote highlighting her surgical success and how, how it was super weird and strange that she had never been given an official appointment. She even wrote a letter to um, President Abraham Lincoln, who wrote back saying he didn't basically didn't want to like disturb the peace by throwing a woman into the army. Nice. So, Good job, Abe. Yeah, red flag for Abe there. But among many. But in 1863, Dr. Walker was finally appointed as an assistant surgeon in the Union Army in Ohio, where then she was then placed in Tennessee for battle. And here is where she worked as a field surgeon on the front lines and became the first officially recognized first female surgeon in the American Army. But soon after her appointment, she was actually captured by the Confederate Army. Oh, shoot. I know. But then two days later, they traded her for a male surgeon instead. Oh, good. (laughs) They were like, "Mm, we don't want you. Yeah. So upon her release, she she continued serving the army, worked in many federal prisons. The entire time that she worked, she wore these quote unquote men's clothes and Mm. she purposely kept her hair nice and long and curly so that everyone on the field would know that she was a woman. I love that. Yeah. So that's my mini biography on Dr. Walker. Do you have any questions so far, Alicia? No, she's awesome, though. She was super cool. All these female physicians in the war were amazing and incredible, but really nothing can beat how nurses changed the state of medicine in the Civil Mm -hmm. War. So let's talk about nurses. Prior to the Civil War, the only military nurses were people who were previously soldiers, so men, who had been wounded and now hobbled around assisting doctors, basically. So really, there was no nurses in today's definition. Mm. And before the war, women were extremely traditional, one would say. Very domestic, all about that purity culture, that submissive way of life. Very 1800s woman. But when war started, women obviously saw they needed to do something. They needed to help in some way. And they wanted to care for the people in their lives who are affected by this war. So they would. They would go and care for their husbands, their sons, their uncles, whoever, on the battlefield. But not as a nurse and not, like, as a recognized person who's helping. Mm. And neither army would actually allow women to join as nurses originally. So the union said that they believed that women were inexperienced, incompetent, and disorganized. They were not allowed to join. Mm. And the South thought it was inappropriate for a woman to touch a man that she was not related to. So they were not allowed to join. But as we discussed already, the war took a turn that really nobody was prepared for. And as the death tolls rise, so that so did the number of women who pressed on to help um, the war efforts. So soon women from across the nation, both the North and the South, came to help. There were women from families of the soldiers. There were Catholic nuns. There were formerly mm-hmm. enslaved women, basically women from across the country. More and more women boarded the battlefields to help, clean the hospitals, and more. And as I mentioned, Elizabeth Blackwell started to train many women through a one-month nursing program, and then she'd send them to the Union Army to a nurse called Dorothea Dix. Yeah. And she was, how do you know who Dorothea Dix is? Dorothea Dix was like yeah. huge progressivist. Like, I think in the Reconstruction era, she was very involved in making prisons less unsafe. She was like a big part of that. Yeah. But anyway, so yeah, I, I recognized the name Dorothea Dix. And I was like, yeah. Yeah. And she, 
she actually was in Europe around the time like Florence Nightingale was there. So she learned a lot about nursing like directly from Mm. her too, which is cool. So she was actually appointed by the Union Army once they realized that, oh my God, we need nurses. Um, Appointed Dorothea and all these nurse candidates would be sent to her. And she had very strict guidelines for her nurses. So one to join, you had to be between the ages of 34 and 50 years old. Which 34 is kind of old to start, but either way, you had to be healthy. Makes sense. You had to be plain looking. So oh, not you can't be can't be too exciting looking, plain only. <laughs> you can't be too do, cute. <laughs> too cute, not allowed. And you could only wear unhooped black or brown dresses. So I'm assuming, you know, 1800s yeah. got those big skirts with the hoops. None of that. And you can't wear jewelry or makeup, which to be fair, you're a battlefield nurse. I wouldn't put my jewelry on either to go in, you know? Yeah. So she was said to be very hard on her nurses, but she trained many nurses and, some, and many were amazing. So I want to talk about two nurses in particular. One, a woman by the name of Anne Bradford. She had escaped slavery from the South, and on her um, escape route, she boarded a Union military vessel, and she became the first female nurse of the U.S. Navy. Cool. She worked personally with four other freed women, where they used medicine they learned from plantations to treat soldiers. Wow. So our plantation oh. sick care episode, all of that medicine we talked about, they used on this Navy ship. That awesome. was so fun. I know. And they were like amazed at how amazing she was. Another prominent nurse was actually Harriet Tubman. Ugh, amazing. I know. So Harriet Tubman, major conductor in the Underground Railroad. And she also served as a nurse in the Union Army. And she specifically worked in South Carolina, where she cared for a Black infantry there and um, free formerly enslaved individuals. And apparently she was a god at curing infectious diarrhea. Like oh, I love yeah. that. I love it. Very <laughs> niche, but you know, they say, do what you love. <laughs> and yeah. she said, so, like, I love curing infectious diarrhea. She had some herbal remedies that she knew and apparently it was amazing. She has gone, that's, that is what she has gone down in history for. Just wow. kidding. Definitely not that, but I wanted to mention it because I thought it was fun. But that brings me to... Um, the last nurse we're going to talk about. So this is Clara Barton, who mm-hmm. Alicia thought this entire episode was on. And then I changed it. She changed it. It's not my fault. I am a good co-host. I pay attention. But <laughs> you do. what you are do. you going to do when they pull the rug out from under you? All right. So let's talk about Clara Barton. Clara Barton, when the war began, just started off like as a nurse treating, you know, the injured as one does. But she quickly realized that, like, the men in the army weren't really men at all. They were truly just children, like, boys that she had grown up with, boys that she worked as a teacher for a bit before um, working as a nurse. So boys she had taught in school, just, like, really young kids, basically, who were soldiers in the war, which really motivated her to join the Union Army and be, um, like, an official nurse. And during her work in the army, she had one particular battle. It was called the Battle of Cedar Mountain. It was in Virginia in the earlier years of the war. And Clara had brought medical supplies directly to the battlefield and was working alongside a surgeon. And after the battle, the surgeon wrote about her and said, I thought that that night, if heaven ever sent down an angel, 
She must be the one. Her assistance was so timely, which deemed wow. her the angel of the battlefield. Ooh. She went on to be known as. I know. And Clara seriously was an angel. She went like literally straight into battle with the soldiers. She would lead her team of nurses and their wagons of medical supplies and truly follow troops like directly into lines of battle. Like she would say, you know, go towards the cannons, she would tell her nurses to do. And this is kind of how I imagine um, Clara and her nurses to add a little um, lighter comment to this. So, you know, when you're like in middle school and you're playing dodgeball and all the boys are like a little too scared to hurt the girls because now they're starting to like have crushes on them and stuff. That is not relatable content, but sure. (laughs) You've never had that? I'm not talking about me personally. I'm talking about in general. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess. I don't know. I feel like the boys at my middle school really did not take any prisoners. Like they were like, (laughs) we don't discriminate by gender. We just have power and we will take you out. Anyway, but I can't imagine a world in which chivalry is not dead. So maybe the boys at my middle school were just nicer. I don't tell you. But basically, we would be playing dodgeball and you could literally be like so many girls left on the teams because the boys would be like so scared to hit them with the ball. So you could literally just like walk around the, the court and no one would hit you. It was like a magical aura of not getting hit by a dodgeball. That's kind of how Clara was on the battlefield. Basically, she had this theory that she and other women could run the risk of being in the battlefield because at the time, the war was not out to get these women. They were not trying to kill women. They were not trying to take women as prisoners. It just wasn't worth their while even, Mm. as you can tell by Dr. Walker, who was captured and then traded two days later. Like they weren't looking for women to capture. So this was an advantage for Clara and her nursing teams. They would go directly into battlefields and be extremely successful in their efforts on the field. That was really interesting. Um, Sexism working in favor for once. Yeah. Apart from her medical services in the war, we're going to slowly start to move away from the Civil War now. Clara jumpstarted the Office of Missing Soldiers as the war began to end. And she helped. So the Office of Missing Soldiers, she created so that she could, like, reconnect soldiers that were missing during the war with their families. She ended up finding over 20,000 soldiers and returning them to their families, which is pretty crazy. Wow. When the war ended and she was done with this project, she actually took a trip to Switzerland, you know, just for some vacation, to chill to hang out casual she came across this crazy organization and what do you what do you think it was the red cross <laughs> yes she came across the red cross because you know the red cross flag is just the inverse of the swiss flag yeah it's just it's just the inverse because switzerland started it uh, so she saw the red cross and she was like vacaying in switzerland in swiss alps and then the french parisian war started and clara being claire Barron joined the war effort oh my gosh through the red cross yeah so she literally went to battle during vacation she saw the red cross carry their flags in the battle everyone wearing red ribbons for protection and saw like how influential this program was in such a war so after the war she returned back to the united states and she founded the red cross in 1881 so 20 years after the civil war started as part of the red cross clara implemented the office of missing soldiers um, into the Red Cross, not specifically like the office itself, but the idea, and created the tracing service, which is still active today. 
Mm. And she also worked to ratify the Geneva Conventions, which is basically these accords that said that the wounded and civilians on a battlefield were protected. You couldn't attack someone who was wounded or civilian. Mm. And that the Red Cross is a neutral, like, protective entity. So, new, like, neutral party in a war. Wow. So, yeah. Big steps um, in military medicine the Red Cross was doing. I also have some fun facts to share with you just about the Red Cross in general because it's Claire Bard's legacy. So the first disaster relief effort of the Red Cross was actually for a forest fire in Michigan. That was their first big thing. Just a little fire. Yeah, just a little fire. Just, they some, put out. just some people camping. The Red Cross also worked in Turkey to protect the oppressed Armenian citizens mm. about 20 years before the Armenian genocide, um, which is unfortunate. And then the first effort the Red Cross did, specifically in the United States, for um, wars was the American-Spanish War, where they aided refugees and prisoners mm. um, of the war. And afterwards, different, like, Spanish populations, um, like, down south, built monuments for Clara Barton. Wow. So they were so thankful for her help for the refugees and the prisoners of war. And then in 1992, the Red Cross started the first national testing lab for blood products, which um, tested for HIV as well at the time. And now mm. the Red Cross provides over 40% of all blood products worldwide. So that was only four of like the million things the Red Cross has done. You can go to their website and they have like it listed by decade. And each decade has like 20 crazy things they've done for the world. So definitely check it out because that's all of what Clara Barton created in the United States. Wow. Also, in addition to all of that, Clara was a close friend of Susan B. Anthony, who got mm. her involved in the women's suffrage movement, and also Frederick Douglass, who influenced her to advocate for civil rights as well. And Clara actually worked for the Red Cross until she was, until she was 82 years old. Wow. passed away at 90 years old. Aww. I know. So she was a hard worker the entire, her entire life. Now, by the end of the war, there was Quickly go back to the Civil War. By the end of the war, a nurse was not known as this wounded soldier who hobbled around doing the doctor's will. It was actually known as a woman who specifically aided doctors via cleaning and feeding patients and assisting in medical treatment. By mm. the end, over 21,000 women joined the Union military hospitals and almost equal that in the Confederacy. So almost over 40,000 women were part of the war by the end and they would say the american civil war was just as much a woman's war as it was a man's war and that is the end of my double biography for you Whoa, that was interesting let's Good. talk about let's talk it, about it. <laughs> let's talk about it episode i haven't actually thought about the late 1800s kind of time period in a while and the history around then so um it was fun to get back into it and i've also always been kind of fascinated by the civil war i don't know why maybe it's like you're attracted to these like dark I mean, things but i don't know it just yeah. a lot it's a crazy war in u.s history yeah like, families fought against families for basically for people who wanted to just keep the south racist 
Yeah. If we're going to boil it down. No, that is what it was. It It is interesting, though. I didn't realize, I guess, like, (laughs) I guess I knew, but I forgot that it was only four years. Yeah. Like, it's extremely short to have that many people die. But my overall thoughts, I think I had two specific thoughts that I was like, oh, that's, I will share these. So the first was I found it quite amusing when... Dr. Mary Walker shows up at this like whatever general's house or whoever he is and he I love the use of the word terrified like he was terrified (laughs) of her because that's just hilarious like she is just a small woman probably who is like hey I'll like volunteer my services yeah and he's like ah (laughs) (laughs) but then it made me start to think like what was he terrified of like he obviously I mean if I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt, I don't think it was that he was actually terrified of her. I think he was yeah. terrified of this idea of having a woman in the army. But is it because he was worried about the socio-political messaging of that? Or is it because he was terrified for her life? Like, I don't know. But mm. that was a thought that I had. Good point. The other thought that I had was about Clara Barton And this whole idea of like sexism being a protective factor in this war, um, Mm -hmm. which I thought was very interesting because like you kind of said, that never happens. I just thought that was pretty interesting because Mm -hmm. that's just never the case. And I'm imagining like two sides duking it out, like guns and everything. And they're just like actively missing (laughs) the women. They're like doing it on purpose. Um, which little then, angels on the battlefield, right? Which then like put the union at a huge advantage. I think mm-hmm. it also says a lot about the Confederates and how few mm-hmm. women they had in their army, and then how that ultimately put them at a. I mean, they were already like, I don't know the politics of the war, but I'm assuming they were already at a disadvantage, and this was just like another way that they were. Because I think yeah. the Confederate side lost more soldiers. I'm pretty sure. Yeah, I don't remember. I saw the numbers. They def- they had women in the war, but like, I don't think it was as much. Yeah. At least the women I were reading about, they only mentioned, I think like one nurse. Okay. Maybe. Yeah. And that's it. I but, mean, I think it also, also is like a historical perspective, history. right? Yeah. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Exactly. How, how history is reported. Um, so yeah, I agree. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think it's interesting. T- I, I like the idea that at the beginning of the war, they ba- basically had like no doctors, no nurses in the war. This war is one of the most like horrific things that have happened in American history with the amount of people who have died for it. And, um, and then just how much changed after it, because after the war, like the nursing profession basically shot up for right. one because so many people became nurses so many women broke that stereotype of being that woman who stays at home who purity dismissive or submissive of being submissive they broke that stereotype by proving that women were useful and important to a civilization right. and were able to take a step forward which is also what's happened in a lot of other wars in american history like world war one and world war ii when women started working in factories and started showing that they can have jobs outside of being home or even just being a nurse at the time. Cause those were like kind of jobs women had. So it was just showing like women can be in other industries. That's kind of what happened later in the 1900s. 
So I just thought that was interesting. That's why I wanted to specifically talk about both physicians and nurses in the war and how both of them were women and existed and had very important positions. And I also have a fun story. It's just related to military medicine. But as we're talking about physicians and especially like Dr. Walker, who was amputating or not amputating on the field or just being a field surgeon, and Claire Barton, who was going into, ba- into battles to heal soldiers. Um, I have this fun modern story for you. So someone I know was telling me about someone they know who is training in the army to be a medic currently. So he's going through medic training, which the best way to describe it is it's like training to be an emergency room attending. So like a physician in the emergency room, meaning they can like intubate patients. They can like do all these crazy things, but the learning is kind of how nurses learn. How it's like Mm. very like problem, you know, answer type of thing Mm -hmm. compared to we can talk about education another time basically it's like that like here's the problem this is what you do but it's very advanced stuff like intubating patients like doing tourniquets doing amputations if needed like treating on spot because it's battlefield medicine so to learn this and to get tested for it they have to do it all on goats what (laughs) yeah so i'm so sorry if you don't want to hear about goats, then you can fast forward like two minutes. I'm so sorry. But this story is um funny, so I have to tell it. So for their exam on this type of medicine, they start off at like, I don't know, like they're breaching a building or something. And they go in the building with like their army unit. And then someone's like, medic, we need a medic. And so then they have to like run over to where people said they need a medic. And then they have to run through the woods and find the wounded soldier they get there it's a wounded goat and the goat has <laughs> no! some <laughs> i know the poor goat they have some real life problem like bleeding out like needs to be intubated something and they have to do that and they on the, spot. the goat <laughs> alicia i'm not lying it gets better from here <laughs> okay so they, they gotta treat the goat on the spot save the goat's life and then they have to pick the goat up and they have to <laughs> They have to run with the goat. <laughs> they have to run with the goat to the rendezvous point. When they get there, a helicopter will come <laughs> down and take the goat. The helicopter will come down. And then they have to successfully transfer the goat to the helicopter <laughs> to be taken to the hospital. And that is how the medics who are taking care of the United States Army are learning right now. Oh my God, oh. that's funny. Isn't that the most hands-on training you ever heard in your life? Yeah, I'm like, wow, um, someone teach me how to take care of a goat. Yeah, so I'm so sorry for the goats, but I, yes, that, I literally learned that the day I was writing this episode, and I was like, I have to include it in the episode because I, I'm i literally talking about these amazing women who worked on the battlefield, and now that's how we're learning. I guess it's effective, but yeah, I just want to talk about that. Anyway, back to the episode topic. Um, So I have one question for you, Alicia, before we get done here. And that is, what what about these like large historical events, the Civil War, the COVID-19 pandemic, whatever it is, big things that change the way of life? How does that give women or people who are often left behind new opportunities, in your opinion, from what you've experienced, whatever? 
I mean, I think like the kind of obvious answer is that when people who are in their certain roles are no longer around, others have to rise to the occasion. That is Mm -hmm. just a known thing. It's known to happen in wars. It totally happened in the pandemic. Um, People just kind of got new opportunities because Mm -hmm. it was born out of necessity. And some people are successful at it and some people aren't. And I was thinking about this question. And honestly, the example I thought of was right now, just like in clinical year as a medical student, I don't have really anything to offer the team except for what the team allows me to take on. Yeah, but for sure. The days that I felt like in the last year I did the most were the days that like the interns weren't around or like the chief resident wasn't around or the senior whoever oh. it was. And when they were gone, I had to rise to the occasion slash I didn't have to. But if I did, I got more experience. I got to learn more. I got to do more. And I always did it supervised, but it was like more helpful because the person who usually does that job is not present. And so I feel like that's kind of how I see this. And it's it's very much like a rise to the occasion event. Yeah, I agree. Like even personally, like tomorrow, the day after we record this episode, I'm on call, which means that we get new admissions to the team I'm on. And I was talking to senior resident today and she was like, okay, my expect, and it's a new team this week than what I've usually worked with. And she was like, my expectation for the med student is that when we get into admission, you personally, you know, read about the patient and then go see them themselves. And I was like, oh, do you want to see with interns? And she was like, no, I want you to see them. So she like was basically saying she was trusting us to go get the stuff done because we know how the system works and we've been rotating in the system for a while. And we have been in the hospital longer than the interns have. Right. Like, That's been such you a medical thing. students need yeah. to go see the new admissions come present to me we'll talk about it and then like the intern will get to it when they can type of thing and I was in there like cool like okay that's more responsibility than I had before but it's good because it forces you to learn in the moment which I like and typically shows you go to OB-GYN never do a, like a vaginal birth with an intern because they're going to want to do all of it because they gotta learn how to do it do it I with know. the senior resident because they will let you hold the baby as as it's born and it's beautiful um so yeah I totally agree that just like the gap I also think that major historical events like fundamentally change society like society has to change to adapt to the events Mm -hmm. and that change in society allows for people who are often oppressed by society to take a step forward like one because there are there's more space but also because like thought processes change, like systems change, things change when like people's worlds are altered. And when there's major events that affect entire populations, it can like sometimes positively affect people who were previously um, oppressed under those societies is my thought. And that's kind of how I see this event we're talking about now and how it positively influenced specifically the nursing field going forward and the creation of the Red Cross. So those are my thoughts. Do you have any final thoughts, Alicia? No, I agree with that. I think you're right that the actual fabric of society changes so much. I think some of the more difficult things are, I think the reason it's difficult to make change is because so many people are stuck in their like ways 
and they have their certain mindsets that just can't be changed. But when you shake up society in such a big way, it like forces kind of systemic change and it forces cultural change. Mm -hmm. So you can actually get things done, which is exciting. Yeah. Kind of cool. Yeah. I mean, scary, but cool. So scary, but cool. Many things that are cool are scary. Many things that are scary can be cool. And with that, (laughs) I leave you. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Words of wisdom from Charlotte this episode. Okay. So if you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, go ahead and subscribe to the podcast on whatever your favorite podcasting app is. We truly do not care which one. You can also leave us a rating and review. You can do both on Apple Podcasts and leave us a rating on Spotify. Yes. And you can also follow us on social media. We are on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram. And you can check out our website for more information, show notes, sources, merch, all of the above. One of my friends wore her from skirts to scrub socks to, oh, to our I pediatrics rotation the other day. And it was hilarious. That's amazing. <laughs> I love the socks. I don't I even like, own them yet. <laughs> I was like, my face is on that sock. Um, and the interns were like, oh, fun. They're like, but yes. weird, but okay, moving yeah, on. Yeah, I know. But You can check us out on all those places. And lastly, here is to the women who fought for us to be where we are today. And may we do the same for those who come after us. Yeah. See everyone next week. Bye.